name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Johnny was a really bright five-year-old, and uh, he went and asked his dad for a baby brother. And he said, Dad, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get a baby brother. His dad was a bright 35-year-old, and he said, Son, I tell you what, if you pray diligently for the next couple of months, he said, I, I feel certain God's going give to give you a brother. And so little Johnny started praying really hard, and he prayed for about a month, and uh, nothing seemed to be happening from his perspective, so he started asking some of his friends, and some of his friends said, you don't get babies that way. You don't get babies by praying for them, and so he became discouraged and quit praying. But about another month went by, and, and mom went off to the hospital, and she came home, and they invited little Johnny into the bedroom, and there on the bed was a little bundle beside mom. And dad said, hey, Johnny, look at this. And Johnny pulled, I mean, daddy pulls back the, the little blanket and there's two baby boys there. And he said, God gave you two brothers. And Johnny's dad looked at little Johnny and he said, Johnny, aren't you glad you prayed? And Johnny, Johnny hesitated for a minute. He said, yeah, dad. He said, but aren't you glad I stopped when I did? <laughs> Well, our subject this morning is prayer. It's not Johnny's prayer. It's not even your prayer or my prayer. The subject this morning is Jesus' prayer. In the text that we have before us, Jesus is going to pray public, publicly, but he's going to pray in such a way so that his disciples can, uh, can listen in. Why does Jesus pray out loud for them to listen in? In just a little bit, he's going to pull off to his side and he's going to pray for hours by himself. Now, I, I take it, I thought about it this morning when I was practicing this, how do we know what Jesus prayed? I mean, maybe they could, they could hear him when he was praying. I, I don't, later on in the Garden of Gethsemane, or maybe God just revealed it to him, I'm not sure. But why does Jesus pray uh, out loud? Is this a fake prayer? Is Jesus praying just for them to hear. Is this kind of like he's praying, but he's, he's teaching them something? The story is told of the, of the preacher who, after the service is over, he's standing at the door, and people are coming out, and, and one uh, brother says to him, he said, Pastor, I really enjoyed both sermons today. And the pastor's a little bit confused, and he said, both sermons? He said, yeah, the one you preached and the one you prayed. And so it's really easy, isn't it, in prayer sometimes to lose focus of what you're doing in prayer, and, and we begin to talk to one another in our prayers. So, uh, you know, so is, is this one of those times where Jesus is just really talking to them and not really to the Father? This is not fake prayer. Jesus is praying to the Father, and he is talking to the Father, but he does obviously want them to listen in. And, and I'm going to suggest, you know, I don't know this for a fact, I'm, you know, we, so often we have to speculate, but I imagine Jesus wanted them to listen in so that they could pray alongside him, but I, I can't imagine that he's not praying so that they could understand, you know, so they could learn from his prayer is this morning. So what I'd like us to do is do the same thing. I'd like us to listen in on Jesus' prayer, and I'd like us to learn from Jesus' prayer. I'd like us to see what he prays, and, and, but then I, again, does any of this apply to us? Do, can we learn from Jesus' prayer? And I say yes, and so we're going to do that, and then at the very end of, of our time together this morning, we're going to actually 
pray the things that Jesus prays for, all right? So Jesus' prayer really breaks down into three parts really, really clearly, really, really simply. And he prays for himself, and then he prays for the 11 men that are with him, and then he prays for all of us who would believe after them. So that would mean, you've probably heard this said before, that Jesus prays for us. So Jesus actually is praying for us today. He's praying for us you know, a couple of millennia ago when, uh, when he was in the garden or when he was with the, the disciples on the way to the garden that night. So let's start with Jesus praying for himself. Chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. Since you gave him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life that that every uh, this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and the one you have sent Jesus Christ. I uh, have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I think if there's one thing that we could distill out of that prayer for Himself, Jesus prays this one thing, and it is that God would glorify Him that God would bring glory to Jesus. Now the word glory means such things as give dignity to, honor someone, praise someone, even worship someone. One pastor said to glorify is thinking and acting in ways that reflect the greatness of the one being glorified. It is to make much of them and their greatness. So Jesus, in a sense, is saying, Father, make much of me. Father, glorify me, bring dignity and honor uh, to me. In fact, Jesus says in his prayer, the hour has come. The hour has come for you to do that. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us exactly, or he's not even talking to us, right? But as we listen in on the prayer, he, he he doesn't say, and by the way, would God have known what he's specifically asking for? Yeah, because God knows all things. God doesn't have to hear our words. God, the Bible says that God hears our heart, right? So whatever Jesus is specifically asking for, the Father would have heard that. But, but let me speculate. I think that Jesus, when he says, Father, bring glory to me, I think he's referencing the coming resurrection from the dead. God, I, I pray that you'll bring glory to me by raising me from the dead. And if you'll remember from last week, that is the context where we find ourselves in this conversation with Jesus. So it's almost, it's almost like this is the prayer that concludes last week's talk, which was the resurrection of Jesus and all that that provides for us. God, the hour has come, he says, and, and this is what I think he's saying. This is Jimmy kind of putting words in Jesus' mouth. But I think this is what he's saying. God, the hour has come for me to die and for you to bring glory upon me by raising me from the dead. I believe that's what he's saying. It's time to glorify me. And indeed, the resurrection of Jesus made him the greatest, most glorified figure in all of history. And truly, his resurrection brought glory upon Jesus. It brings honor. It's the reason we worship him today, because he rose from the dead. So, in fact, that's exactly what God did through the resurrection of Jesus. Now, some of you may be thinking, maybe not, because we in our church family here, we have a conviction that Jesus is God, but, but maybe you might be thinking it's unfit for Jesus to be asking that God would glorify him, that God would bring glory and dignity and shine his light on him. But you know, as we go through Jesus' prayer, here's a couple of observations that I think you know, put that request in a totally different light. Here's the first one. Jesus says, bring glory to me so that I might bring glory to you. 
Glorify me so that I might glorify you. Jesus isn't asking for independent glory for himself. Jesus is asking, glorify me so that that reflection of glory might, might fall upon you. And indeed, the resurrection of Jesus did just that. It brought glory to God. The resurrection did. Because in it, we see the love of God for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should never perish, or not perish, but have everlasting life. The resurrection of Jesus proves the love of God. And I want to suggest to you this morning that I think anyway, God is most glorified in his love and provision for the world. I know we, we believers, we disagree on what brings glory to God the most. Some folks believe that, that God gets most glory from his power and his meticulous control. But I don't think so. I believe that God is most glorified in his love for us. I think he's most glorified in his humility and kindness that would, that would let this omnipotent creator of all things humble himself and become like us so that we could be saved, so that we could have eternal life with him. And, and so Jesus is saying, show glory on me so that the glory might shine on you. And indeed, the resurrection of Jesus, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus shines tremendous glory on God's loving kindness for us. Jesus isn't praying for glory for himself. He repeats this request in verse 5. See it? Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is asking for glory, first of all, that it might reflect on the Father, but here he's saying, glorify me because I had this glory with you before we ever created anything. And here we find one of the reasons why we believe that Jesus is God, because Jesus is talking about his existence prior to there being any creation. And he's saying, before there was ever any creation at all, remember the glory that I shared with you as God. Because we believe the Bible teaches that God is one, but yet he's three distinct persons. And Jesus, as one of those persons who is God, he shared the glory of the Father. So when he says, Father, glorify me, he's saying, glorify me with a, with a glory that was mine as God before you ever did anything. Now, there's some more that we can learn from Jesus' prayer. And again, I don't, I don't know that Jesus is trying to teach us from his prayer, but there's definitely some things we can learn from them, from him and his praying. Number one would be Jesus has all authority to give eternal life to his disciples. You see that, don't you? Verse two, since God, you gave him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given to him. In this context, Jesus is speaking about those 11 men that are at his side. And he's saying, Father, you've given me authority to give eternal life to these men. And not just to them, but to all that the Father would give him. Now, one question we might want to ask, who has the Father given to the Son? Well, I personally believe that God has given to the Son everyone who puts his faith in the Father. Everyone who, by faith, comes and trusts in God. He gives them to Jesus so that they come to believe in Jesus. As many as are willing to humble themselves, who, as many as are willing to look at what God has revealed about himself in creation and in the world and in their hearts, as many as are willing to not suppress, suppress that truth but respond to it, to them, the Bible says that God gave them to his Son. So John would write, remember back in chapter one, all the way back then, he says, but to as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God. I'm absolutely convinced that Jesus is the chosen one. He is the chosen one. And if you are in Jesus, if you are in Jesus, then, then you have all that is in Jesus. And what is in Jesus? Eternal life is in Jesus. 
Adoption as sons of God is in Jesus. Forgiveness is in Jesus. A new nature is in Jesus. And if you're in Jesus, then all of those things are yours. You know, this, this week, uh, several folks from our church and some folks from our community went to the, to the replica of Noah's Ark. And, uh, you know, I, I think we can make an allusion to this in the scripture, but the Bible says, I think the Bible says, if not, it's, it's definitely illustrative of Jesus. The Ark of, the, the Ark of Noah is illustrative of Jesus, right? Because the wrath of God came against humanity and, and it destroyed the earth, meaning it destroyed all humanity on the earth except for those who were in the Ark. And the Bible says that those of us who are in Christ, the wrath of God, the, the wages of our sin, which is death, we are spared from that because of, of who Christ is and in him. Here's a, here's a he, say, he says in verse six, I have revealed, well, before we go into that, let me, let me comment on one other thing that we learned from Jesus. Here he says that this is eternal life. It was actually in the video. It's not in my notes, but I want to comment on it. Then in the video, remember Jesus said, uh, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and the son, whom is myself, Jesus, the Messiah, right? This is eternal life, to know God. What does he mean by that? What he means is, guys, there's no, there's no way to life that is eternal that's not found in Christ. It's in Christ and only in Christ. It is to know God. It is to believe in the Father and in the Son. So Jesus says, this is eternal life. What he means is that is the, that is the way, the means by which we are given eternal life to, when we know God in a personal relationship. Verse six, I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours, you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you because I have given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. You have believed, they have believed that you sent me. So verse 11 tells us that the 11 disciples already belonged to God and God gave them to Jesus. What that simply means is they were already men of faith. They were already men who were trusting in Jehovah. And so when Jesus comes along, you know, the Father gave to Jesus all those who were already walking in faith. You remember, he was hardening the Jews. He hardened them as a nation. Why did he harden them? As a judgment. Who did he give to the Son? All those Jews who were walking by faith. They already belonged to him. That's what, that's what we learned from the prayer. Here's the second thing we learned. Jesus brought glory to God the Father by doing the work that God gave him to do. The work that the Father, Jesus, and the Spirit had decided, I believe, long before the world ever existed. Jesus says, you see that? He said, um, let me go back to the verse and read it because I didn't write it down. He says, I have glorified you, verse four, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Well, what is the work that Jesus and the Spirit and the Father had decided on for Jesus to do before anything? Well, it was the work of dying on the cross. Even though Jesus hasn't gone to the cross, I think he's including that. But, but, but I think Jesus obviously is looking back on the last three years or maybe the last 33 years of his life. And he's saying, I've done the work that you have for me. That includes the cross that's coming tomorrow. But, but here I think he's talking about he has done what God wanted him to do, which was that God would, that Jesus would reveal reveal who God is to us. I mean, this is so important. A lot of times we think of Jesus just doing the work on the cross, and, and that is so paramount, it's so central. I don't mean to minimize that in any way, but I want you to know that Jesus did another work too, and that is that he revealed to us who God is. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. 
Because he was God and is God. And so Jesus said, I've completed the work that you've done. I've revealed you to the world. The reason we know that our God is not a sadist and not arbitrary and not a hater of men is because Jesus comes along and and he's just the opposite of that. He's a lover of people. He's a lover of the marginalized and the poor. He's a lover of the people who are downtrodden. And those of us that are not that, he really holds us to a high standard and calls us to love others and to not walk in any kind of hypocrisy. So Jesus is revealing God to us. In this prayer, he tells us that. I, you know, I've done the work you have for me, Father. I've brought glory to you. And indeed, he brought glory to God by revealing to us who God is. But not only that, here's another thing that I think he did in that work. And that is for three years now, he's been preparing those men to carry on the message. He's been investing in those three men. So those three men will, those 11 men, excuse me, will disciple 11 other men who in turn will disciple 11 other men, who in turn will multiply it to the ends of the earth. So Jesus said, I've completed the work that I have for you. And and that is, and I think he means, and I think he's including the cross and his death the next day, but, but I think he's talking about, I've revealed God to men and I have also prepared those who will carry the message. Now, I think there's an application in here for us, if I could just kind of scoot down an off trail for just a second. I think there's an application in here for us. Jesus said, I brought glory to God by doing the work you had for me. And I want to suggest to you that you and I can bring glory to God by doing the work that God has for us. Would you agree? I mean, is that a fair Is that a fair kind of application? If Jesus said, I brought glory to you by doing the work that you had for me, would it not be fair to say that we can bring glory to God by doing the work that God has for us? And I know if you're following me and tracking with me, your your mind is already thinking, but what, what, what work do I have? You know, what is my work? Well, here's a couple of things just to suggest to you. What is your work? Your, your work is to believe on the Lord Jesus. And by believing, I think that means following and loving and obeying God. You remember when when Jesus fed the 5,000 and and the the next day the the crowds are all trying to find him because he says, you're seeking for me because you want me to feed you again. And in that course of conversation, um, Jesus talks about the work of God and they said, tell us what the work of God is that we might do it. And Jesus tells them, he says, this is the work of God. Believe in him whom God has sent. You know, you want, to, you want to do the work of God? Believe on the Lord Jesus. Follow Jesus. Obey the Lord. Make him sent. Love him above everything else in your life. That's how you do the work of God. So, hey, you know, if you want to bring glory to God, love God. But that's not the only way I think you can bring glory to God by loving God. I think you bring glory to God by loving others. I think you, I think you bring glory to God by loving God and loving people. Oh, by the way, isn't that what Jesus said? All the law can be distilled down to these two things. Love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, so that, that would mean, you know, you want, to, you want to do the works of God? Love your family. Love your spouse. Love your children. Prioritize them. Put them ahead of yourself. You, you, want, you want to do the works of God? Love your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. You want, to, you, want to, you want to do the work of God? Love people out there that rub you wrong, that don't know Christ yet, who are maybe in your face because they're angry with God. Love those people. That's how you do the work of God. That's what we should be doing if we want to bring glory to God. This morning I was, I was having breakfast and I was scrolling through my Instagram and there was a picture from Olivia. 
And Olivia's in Malawi. She's been there since Tuesday or Wednesday, I guess. But she was talking about, she was talking about how wonderful the week has been. And one of the things that she said in, in, in her comment underneath her picture was, it's been so cool because I'm in this international body of Christ. And there's people, and she names all these countries. And then she says this, and we're all working together for one purpose. Dash, dash, dash. To love God and love others. I'll tell you, that, that's, that's the work of God. And that's what we can learn from Jesus here, I think. You want to bring glory to God? Do the work of God. Love God with all your heart and love people. Here's the second, second part. He prays for his 11 disciples or his 11 brothers. Verse 9, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you get, have given me because they are yours. Everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine. I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now I am coming to you and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I'm sure I'm not going to do justice to Jesus' prayer but in his prayer for them, I think he's really praying for, I think he's praying for four things for them. Let me show you what they are. Number one, he's praying for their protection. He says it several times. Father, protect them. Father, protect them. When I was with them, I protected them. Father, I'm getting ready to leave the world. I'm not in the world anymore. I'm coming to you. Father, protect them. He even says protect them from the evil one. Do you see that? The implication is there is an evil one. There is an adversary. There is a Satan out there who is our adversary. Protect them from that evil one, Jesus says. He says, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. I'm just asking you to protect them. So what exactly is Jesus asking for when he says protect them? Now, he doesn't, he doesn't tell us. So, I mean, we have to just kind of, I guess, speculate a little bit of what he's praying for. Uh, so here, here's my speculation. I think he's asking for God to protect them physically to keep them from being killed and harmed, protect them from the world that's gonna be against them. Now, I mean, I don't know how to, you know, how do we judge this? Does God answer your prayers always yes? The answer to that is no, right? But here the Son of God, who is also God himself, prays, does God answer yes to everything Jesus is asking in his humanity? So he, let's just say he's, he's praying for their protection physically. Is that true, does that happen? Well, in just a short amount of time, James is going to be beheaded. Now, he does protect Peter, right? Remember, Peter's imprisoned and in the middle of the night. I mean, they, the doors are open. The angels lead him out, so he gets protected. Eventually, though, he'll be crucified upside down. So maybe it's not physical protection. Maybe Jesus isn't praying for their physical protection. Maybe he's praying for their spiritual protection, that, that, that God, would, God would guard their hearts and not let them fall away. But even Jesus acknowledges, I lost one. I lost Judas, the son of perdition, you know? So, you know, what does he mean by that? Is he praying? Now, let's just say, let's be honest, he doesn't, you know, all of the 11 men that Jesus is praying for that night will go on to never 
never fall away. They will not fall away. And not only that, they, according to, to tradition and legend, if you would, all 11 men would die uh, because of their faith and die not necessarily in a really easy way. Except for maybe Jonathan, uh, John, who, is, who dies, in, dies in exile. So uh, is he praying for um, their spiritual protection? I mean, I, I think he's praying for both. I think Jesus, who, by the way, does Jesus, and again, we, we disagree here, and I don't, Christians disagree here, does Jesus inherently know all things in his humanity at all the time, or is, are they revealed to him by the Spirit? You all know my conviction. I think he's revealed, the Spirit reveals to Jesus. I don't think he innately knows it, uh, but I could be wrong. But if he doesn't innately know it, then he's praying what his heart's desire is, that God would protect them and that God would protect them spiritually and physically. But he prays for their protection. Next, he prays for their unity. Holy Father, protect them by your name, okay, that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. So again, I mean, there's the protection aspect, but here he's praying for their protection. Maybe that's a spiritual protection of some sort from the enemy because indirectly he says that affects their unity. I want them to be one. So one essential necessity from them going forward is that they be one. They be united in mind and heart and, and just in, uh, in, 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 how would you be able to be united in mind and heart and, and love? He, he prays, God, let them be united because they're going to be the builders of the church. And so if they're not one, how, you know, how is the church ever going to be one? So he prays for their unity. Then he prays for their joy. Verse 13, now I am coming to you and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. Now maybe stretching it because he doesn't literally say, Father, give them joy. God, help them find joy. But indirectly, I think he's asking, Father, help them walk in joy. Help them find my joy so that their joy may be complete. Jesus desires for us to walk in such a way in this life so that we find joy. And can I tell you, joy, joy for us isn't fun activities. I mean, it's not, it's not just happiness, although I, I don't think we want to totally exclude joy from happiness, but joy is that sense of well-being, that sense of peace that comes from knowing God and walking with God and loving God. So, you know, when, when bad things happen to you, you can still have a sense of well-being. You can still have a sense of peace in your soul. Joy is the contentment the ability to not be frazzled when, uh, when things come to you that should be frazzling you, it's the ability to have contentment in the middle of that because you're trusting God. And that's why I think he's praying for them. Lord, let their, let their joy be completed. And then the final thing he prays for them, and, and I love this one. Well, I love them all, actually, but he prays for their character. You say, well, I didn't see that. Look at verse 16. They are not of the world just as I'm not of the world. Jesus has changed us. Our, our kingdom is... Our allegiance is to our King, in the Lord Jesus. We're not part of this world. If you, we live in this world, but we're all other world, at least we should be. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you set, sent me into the world, I've also sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they may also be sanctified by the truth. Well, what does sanctified mean? Well, sanctified literally means to be set apart. It's often translated holy, right? So Jesus is saying, set them apart by your word. Here's what he means. He means, Lord, make them different. Set them off from the world because they're following your word, my word, your word. 
set them apart, make them different, make them look different, be different by your words. In other words, Jesus is praying for God to transform our character so that we're different than the rest of the world. I'm telling you, you don't need to be different from the rest of the world like weirdo different. You need to be different because you love people, you're kind, you're not selfish, you, you prefer others as more important than yourself. You have a different priority in the world. It's not about making this life the best life it can be. Your priority is about keeping your eye on the king and loving him with all your heart and loving other people. You see, so Jesus is saying, set them apart by your word. May your word transform them and change them. You know, what does he say in Romans chapter 12? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? By the word of God. And so he's, he's saying to us right here, he's saying, he's saying, Father, I'm praying for their character to be transformed. And he tells us why. He says, so that other people would see them and be drawn to me and you. And I'm telling you, if, if we don't, the, the whole purpose of God creating the nation of Israel was so that God was going to use them to draw all men to himself. And I'm telling you, who God is using to draw all men to himself today is a new holy nation. It's the people of God. It's the church of the Lord Jesus. So that's what we're to be. That's who we're to be. And he's saying here, our unity, our unity is going to cause people to say, and our, not, not our unity. Our, our, transform, our character is going to cause people to say, hey, I want to know more about this, God. Can I ask you a question? I'm asking it to myself as much as to you. When was the last time somebody said, wow, you are different? Can you tell me why you're the way you are? When was the last time anyone said that to us? Shouldn't people be saying that to us more often than not? You're different. Why are you different? But that's what Jesus is praying for them. So before I move on to the last point, um, do you think if Jesus were here this morning, physically, personally, he's here in his spirit, but if he came here and he was going to pray for us, do you think he'd pray those four things for us? He wasn't praying them for us. He was praying them specifically for those 11 men. But would he pray those four things for us? I think Absolutely. I think he'd pray for our protection. I think he'd pray for our unity. I think he'd pray for our joy. And I think he would also pray and ask the Father, although Jesus is now, I'm assuming his omnipotence and his omniscience are all his again. But, you know, if he were talking to the Father, I think he'd pray these four things for us. So maybe we should pray those four things for ourselves and for one another. Now, the final point in Jesus' prayer, the final divide in Jesus' prayer is that he prays for all of us today. Verse 20, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, you are in them, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Now, I think it's pretty clear, isn't it? There's one central thing Jesus prays for all of us. 2,000 years ago, he prayed this for us. He said, you know, I know people are gonna believe because of you. And he says, Father, because of those 11, he says, Father, those that will believe, here's what I pray for them. I pray that they would be one. 
I pray that they would have unity. I, I pray that in that unity, people would see the unity that you and I have and they would know that I've loved them because they are one. Now, the oneness that Jesus desires, he says, is again, just what he said to the 11, is that the world would notice it and, and would be consequently drawn to us because of it. Jesus says, I have given them the glory that you've given me. I mean, I don't know what he means there. For uh, I have a speculation here. It is, I think maybe he's referencing the Holy Spirit. God had given the Holy Spirit to Jesus. I've I've told you before, I I think the Holy Spirit is mentoring and tutoring and discipling Jesus throughout those those years on on the planet with us. That's my estimation. Acts chapter 10, verse 38, I believe it is, says that Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit and did what he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. I think that is what that means. But, but, But I think Jesus is saying, the glory that you gave me in the Holy Spirit, I mean, we're giving that to them. So they'll have the same, the same glory as I had. But I find it troubling, maybe even disturbing, that instead of unity in the body of Jesus, <clears throat> we seem to be really fractured. Not that, not that we haven't been fractured from the very beginning. The church at Corinth was one of the earlier churches, right? And uh, first chapter, chapter one, Paul admonishes the church, a divided church. This is what he says to them. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you and that you be united with the same understanding and same conviction. I mean, there's a church that's divided. Paul's writing to them, hey, I, I'm, t- I'm admonishing you, don't be divided here. Don't, you know, be of the same mind, speak the same thing. Now, unfortunately, their division is not the end of division, it's the beginning of division. Because the church would just go on to be divided and divided and divided. And so today, the church of the Lord Jesus is divided between the Eastern church and the Western church. Within those two divisions, there are six other divisions, Catholicism, Protestantism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Anglicanism, Oriental Orthodoxy, and and the Assyrians. Don't know what that means. Amongst those divisions, there are 22,000 independent denominations. There are 9,000 Protestant denominations. There are 1,600 denominations that are marginalized. Uh, amongst the Orthodox, there's 781 denominational divisions. Amongst the Catholics, which, you know, they're one church, right? But there's 242 divisions amongst them, and, and there's even more. And then on top of that, we divide not just according to those things, but we divide by race and ethnicity, even when we speak the same language. And if you want to add insult to injury, as the old idiom goes, Christians are not known for our unity and our love for one another. We're known for our what? Our fighting, our division. Right? So why are we so divided when our king prays for us and longs for us to, uh, to have unity? I mean, that's a rhetorical question because I don't really have an answer. I'm going to, I'm going to offer something to you this morning and, and I'm going to offer a challenge that, that I've implemented in my life that I'd like to encourage you with. But why are we so divided? Well, here's why I think we're so divided because we're still fallen and flawed and selfish and sinful. In other words, Jesus hasn't eradicated that nature that we have and by, by faith in him, we become part of the church and so we have all levels of maturity within the body of Christ, correct? 
We have, so people are coming into the body of Christ. They're just coming from the world. They've been living in selfishness, but now they're following Jesus. I mean, you know, it takes some time for the Lord to begin to sanctify us and change us. Sanctify them by, by, my, by your word, he says to the Father. That takes time. I mean, we don't become mature overnight. That's why you don't lay hands on elders overnight. It's why you, you, you look for maturity that comes over time. So that fallen and flawed and sinful and selfish thing that all of us are, right? We come together, and because of that, I, I think we've ended up dividing over the years because of that. And I, and I think God knew it. In fact, one of the reasons I think God prays for us in this way is because he knew we'd struggle with this very issue so much, okay? But I want to suggest to you two reasons why we, we are, have divided and are fractured like we are. We divide over theological differences, or more specifically, we divide over what we think the Bible is teaching or the position the Bible takes on this or that. And if we don't agree on those things, we separate. And uh, probably if, uh, if there's one primary root that has divided us, it is the desire, and it's a good root, everyone, it's a desire to be faithful to what God has revealed. And so we desire to be faithful to what God has revealed. And so therefore, we, we end up saying, well, I don't think you're right on what God's revealed. And so, you know, and we say, well, I can't be with you because you don't agree with me on this. And we have divided over those things. And it comes from a, from a, from a good root, I believe, a, a desire to be faithful to God's word. Now, I want, I want to share with you the oldest creed that we have outside the Bible. The oldest creed that we have outside the Bible is called the Apostles' Creed. Tradition says that the apostles each contributed one part to it. I don't know that that's true. Nobody knows that. And it's been, you know, depending on what division you're from, you've modified it. We've modified it over the years. But the oldest, here's the oldest edition of the Apostles' Creed. I want to read it to you. You listening? Here goes. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day He arose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven. By the way, I don't think I corrected that, but it, up there it says He descended into hell, which isn't in the oldest versions of it. From there He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That's the oldest creed that we have outside the Bible, okay? The word count on the Apostles' Creed is 110. The word count on our Baptist faith and message is just shy of 4,000. My point in saying that to you is that the creeds of the early believers were very small and very short. And you can say, well, that's because God hadn't given us the Bible yet. We didn't have a judge to, against which to judge what we believe. And you'd be somewhat right in that, right? But the thing I want you to note, and this is the thing that has impressed me since I was a young believer, is that the creeds of the old, the oldest creeds of the church, look how, look how short they are. Look at what few things they have in there. And they found unity amongst those things. So we divide over theological differences. Secondly, we divide over, over preferences. We like what we're familiar with. We like what we like. We like to worship God using the style of music that we like or, or the type of instruments we like or no instruments at all. We, we like how things are done here and how they're not done here. Uh, we like worship-centered dark. 
when we worship, or we like it filled with light. The other week when we were up with my family up in Pennsylvania, we visited a church family on Sunday morning, and, and so when worship begins, all the lights go down, and there's no windows, and it's, you can't see any of you out there, and you can't see each other, and the only lights are on the stage, okay? Uh, that wouldn't have been my cup of tea, right? But some people like that, so we divide over those kind of things. Now, can I tell you there's no ultimate fix for any of this until Jesus comes, so, so hear me, I mean, there's, not gonna, there's no fix to what I just laid out for you until Jesus comes. Now, when Jesus comes, he will fix it all. He will fix it all. He'll straighten us all out as to what is true. We'll get to sit down with him, and, and when we don't understand, we can say we don't understand, and he'll explain it to us, and we, we'll all know clearly. Now we see through a, a, a dark a window, it says, you know, and, and, but then we're going to see and know face to face. So until Jesus comes, but can I suggest this? Even when Jesus comes, we're probably still going to have personal preferences, right? I mean, we're people. We have different preferences. We'll probably still have different preferences. The only difference is we won't have a sinful nature that makes us want to divide from each other over those preferences. Again, maybe this is why Jesus prays so diligently in this prayer for our unity because he knew it'd be so hard for us. So I'm almost finished. If you can just hang in with me for a few more minutes. I've only got a few more minutes anyway. So, so here, here's what I, I want to share with you about my personal life right here, okay? Because ever since I became a follower of Jesus, uh, striving for unity with other believers has been my heart. And I think if you've known me for these 30 years that we've been together, I think you'd have to say that's true. But I want to be a, an agent of unity. I want you to be an agent of unity. I used to think it was because I was a godly man. Now I just think it's because I'm Enneagram 2, Michael. <laughs> for those of you that don't know Enneagrams, that's not going to make sense to you. But anyway, my personality, according to the Enneagrams, is one who wants to just have unity with everyone, right? I used to think it was because I was a godly man. Now I'm not convinced. I'm not sure. But regardless, regardless, this is what I think God's heart is for us. So I'd like to offer you two suggestions that I've lived by. And, and, and some of you might, you might have a hard time with them, and that's fine. But all I just simply ask you is, you know, just consider it. Pray about it. Think about it, you know. Let the Lord speak to you about it. But here are the two considerations that I've lived by for the last 40 years of following Jesus. First, I strive not to let doctrine divide me from other believers if I can help it. When I was in seminary, there was a fellow by the name of Marv Rosenthal, and Marv was the founder of a ministry called Friends of Israel. He founded the ministry from the beginning. I mean, he, he started it. He created a board of directors. And, and back then, everybody was nuancing their doctrine down to the, you remember the 110 words versus 4,000? Probably the doctrinal statement of the Friends of Jesus probably had 10,000 words. I don't know. It was just that nuanced. And one of the things that, that that ministry said is we believe that Jesus is going to come back. There's going to be a seven-year tribulation. We believe Jesus is going to come back and take all Christians off to heaven at the beginning of the seven years. And that's what their doctrinal statement said. And I'm in seminary, and, and somewhere in the along the line, Marr becomes convinced that he was wrong. And that in this seven-year period that he believes is going to happen, that Jesus is going to come back in the middle, not the beginning. And his board fired him. His board fired him. I'm just a young Christian, just beginning to follow Jesus. And I remember thinking, how, 
how ridiculous is that? How unchristlike? What's wrong with us? That, that here's a man who has a heart and loves God, yet he believes Jesus is going to come back three and a half years later than he used to think, and we're going to fire him from the board he created, from the ministry he created. And so from the very beginning, I have sought to not let doctrine divide me from other believers. Now, I need to rapidly say, don't misunderstand. I think doctrine is extremely important. Very important. Doctrine, I want to understand scripture and to understand doctrine. However, I want you to understand that I choose to love my brothers and sisters who disagree with me as much as possible. And I'm going to do life with them as much as possible. Besides, so often, you know, this brother or sister that I now disagree with over the way I think the Bible is teaching something, that brother loves Jesus and he might love Jesus more than me. His, his whole demeanor and heart and faithfulness and godliness surpasses mine and yet I think his understanding of scripture is, is wrong and errant in that place. I've decided a long time ago, I'm going to choose to love him and walk with him rather than divide from him because he and I don't see it exactly the, the same way. And can I say something in my old age? And I've alluded to this a lot. I've talked to the elders about it. But, but in my old age, I, I've come to believe that a lot of things that I thought I had right aren't right. And I, and I, think, I, think, I think I was wrong. And so if I can be wrong about something, and I know some of you are not wrong about anything, and I get it, Okay. And I get it. But I, but I believe I can be wrong. And if I can be wrong, then, then maybe grace towards others who disagree with me, because maybe I'll find out 10 years from now that I'm the one that's wrong and they're not the one that's wrong. Now I know what you're thinking. I really do know what you're thinking. Some of you are thinking, but what about this, Jimmy? And what about that? And I want you to know that, that yeah, there are some what ifs that I would divide over. But I'm just trying to tell you that in my following Jesus' life, I have tried to minimize those what-ifs. And here, here's, here's what I say. If you believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and you believe that Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah is his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified and died and was buried, and third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And if you believe, if you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Catholic Church, and by the way, just, just so you know, Catholic Church it doesn't mean Catholicism, it means the universal church. You believe in the holy universal church, the forgiveness of sins, the communion of saints, the resurrection of the body, and, the ever, and life everlasting. If you believe that, man, I'm going to do my best to walk with you as your brother. I'm going to choose to love you. And the second thing that I have personally tried to do my entire following Jesus life as I have stro strove, strived, I've strived, is that right? Striven? All right, English people, help me out. Which is it? Striven, all right, thank you. Striven, I didn't even know that word existed. So um, I have striven, boy, that sounds weird. <laughs> I hope y'all are right. So anyway, I have striven, but y'all get on that. I have striven to die to my preferences. Now, some of you might think that's true, but it is true. I have tried to die to my preferences. God's pretty clear. Consider others as more important than yourself. God's pretty, God's pretty clear. He's really clear that you should 
prefer them as more important than yourself. Put them ahead of you. And, uh, and that means even when I think I'm right, or even when I think I know I'm best, sometimes, you know, I need to put my preferences, because they're just preferences, even though I think they're best and right or whatever, I need to subjugate them to somebody else's preferences. Now, it's a bit hard for me, can I just be honest, because I'm also tasked with leading. And so it's kind of difficult for me to know sometimes, is this, is this, is this what I need to say leading-wise, or is this, is this just a personal preference? Which is this? I can give you an, so I, I think I've always failed. I, I've failed by wanting to give in too much when really I, I should be leading and I should be saying, no, we really need to do this. I can remember one issue in particular was music. So we began to transition at some point in our church to have music that was more contemporary and not just, just the old hymnology from the past. And that was a really point of contention for folks. Now, the new music was my preference, but also the new music was what I felt like we needed to do as a church family. And so I chose, I chose to lead out on that, and even though it's my preference. Uh, I'll never forget Nathan Cecil's grandmother. Uh, she was 80 years old. And the first time she came to visit us, we were standing in that back corner back there where you are, Bill and Dottie, and we were talking, and she said to me, we were talking about music. I don't know how we got on it, but this is what she said to me. It's almost a quote. She says, the music in my church and the music of this day is not my preference, but it's not about me. And I want to reach the young people of my generation. And so, you know, that, that's what I'm trying to say here. The reason we divide is we, we divide so too often over, over preferences. And, uh, and we, and, you know, as the building stands out there, it wasn't my preference. It wasn't what I thought we should build to start with, right? It wasn't my preference. But I let my preferences die to the preferences of a group. And what we end up with, I think, is, is better than what I preferenced at the beginning. My point is that unity, I think, triumphs over preferences. When I was young, stories abounded of churches splitting over carpet choices and wall paint. I think our church family endured some of those struggles over wall paint and carpet colors. You know, we should die to our preferences and put relationships first. Jesus now concludes his prayer. He says, Father, I want those of you, this is verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me uh, before the world's foundation. So Jesus says, I really want these, my brothers, to see me in my glory and see us united as one. And by the way, we will definitely see that firsthand. We will see that in, in the video that the Bible Project, you know, did. We will see God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit united in one. We'll see the glory that Jesus had from before the foundation of the earth. Verse 25, righteous Father, the world has not known you, however I have known you. <clears throat> And have known, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them, and will continue to make it known, so that the love you have, the love with which you've loved me. Uh, excuse me, I didn't read that right. Verse twenty-six. I made your name known to them, and will continue to make it known, so that the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. And these closing words in his prayer. Uh, Jesus says, I have known God personally and I've shared his name with my followers. Now your name is what characterizes who you are. He says, I've revealed their name to you, your name to them. I've revealed your character and your heart to them. 
So the author of Hebrews says, long ago, God spoke through the fathers by the prophets at different times in different ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son. Paul would write to to Colossian church, he would say, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all this fullness dwell in him. Here's what Jesus is saying, I have revealed God to them so that they know your heart, they know your character, they know your nature, they know your name. I've revealed them to you. And why, Jesus says, so that God's love might be in us and, and he in us by his spirit, might, he might be in us as well. The heart of Jesus, the heart of God, is that we might be as loving, as kind, as united as he is. And I'd like to invite all of us this morning to be filled with the spirit, filled with the same sort of love and unity that, uh, that Jesus desired for us. Would you bow your heads with me? And I appreciate your patience. Just a little bit long this morning. But I'd like to ask you just to, you know, bow your heads. Jana, how about playing something on the piano for us? Would you just, something lightly? Um, and while Jana's playing, I, I won't extend this very long, but I just, I want to give you an opportunity to receive the Lord Jesus this morning. I'm not going to assume that just because you're here, you have received the Lord. You have by faith said, Lord, I'm going to seek you. I want to follow you. I want to invite you to follow Jesus today. Where you sit right now, just you and God, you don't have to walk an aisle. I mean, we do that sometimes, but it's really not about where you walk, but it's about what's transpiring in your heart this morning. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to receive him, to just open your heart right now. Say, Lord Jesus, come in. Come in, I want to follow you. I want to know the love that, that the Father and you have. I, I, I just want to be yours. And then, uh, again, while Janet's still just playing something softly, I want to invite you and urge you to, uh, to love like Jesus. This is for all of us. I mean, I think if there's anything that sort of just kind of just rolls out of Jesus' prayer is this, this love that brings unity to us. Loving each other, loving God. You know, our unity, we've had great unity as a church for quite a few years now, but we should never take our unity for granted. We should pray for it and protect it. So I want to invite you just to pray right there. I'm going to be quiet for a few minutes. And just would you pray? Here's two things to pray for. God, would you fill my heart with your love and may it overflow to my brothers and sisters around me and my family and my workmates. Just ask God to fill you with love so that your love, his, his love is just bubbling out of you. And then pray for God to protect us, to protect our unity, to guard our unity. Now, even as you're praying for that, you're praying for yourself to be one with Jesus and one with one another. You're, you're praying about, I think anyway, dying to your preferences. And as much as possible as you can, choose to walk with brothers and sisters who may not have it right just yet, you know? Who may be wrong. Oh, Holy Spirit, thank you for being present with us today and for prompting our hearts as you have. Lord, uh, help us. Guard our, guard our unity, Lord. Create in, in this family here, create love that is so abundant and so real and so tangible that people in Surrey and Alloy County would, would know it and feel it, sense it, be drawn to you. 
Lord, individually, we ask that you would work so much in our hearts and lives that people would say, what makes us, what makes you different? Lord, would you work in our heart to that end? Lord, again, thank you for your presence with us this morning. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.